Hey everybody, this is Brent Kellogg, the pastor of Hill Spring Church in Sand Springs, Oklahoma. And this is our podcast. Thanks for taking time to join us today. Our prayer is that this would inspire you, build your faith, and help you take the next step in Christ. Enjoy the message. Um, kids these days will never know how cool we used to be, right? So there used to be these things that were made out of paper called books, right? Like the Bible used to be that way. And it would be one of those that if you opened up to Mark, like the whole book of Mark would come out because it's, uh, we've just been there. So actually for the next few weeks, we're going to be in a series called Hot Topics. We've done it for several years. We've called it different things, but um, kind of the idea of you ask for it. So we're going to take a theological approach to some practical things that impact our lives on a daily, regular, consistent basis. And today we're going to start this series and I'm going to talk about something that is on the minds of the whole world. Like if you see the news it's there. If you're on social media, it's, it's very present. And so we're just going to spend some time talking about what's going on in the Middle East. And there's always this temptation in the Bible because there's so much that, like there's just books we don't ever study, like Obadiah or Joel or whatever, to think that there's a secret code and just looking for the right guy. And, and even there's preachers and televangelists like I've been the one to crack the code like okay so if you'll take every third word from the book of Obadiah if you'll translate it from Hebrew into Greek into Japanese back to English right then you crack the code of when Jesus is coming back I'm not cracking any codes today I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna do that but I am gonna show you in scripture why we are here where we are today and what's going on in uh, in the Middle East so if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, I'm going to be all over the place today. I really am going to throw a lot of scripture at you. Um, there's no blanks to fill in. There's no practical step number one. Step number two is going to feel more like a, a TED talk, probably somewhat of just some informational stuff. Um, but on the back, every verse that I'm going to use, I've listed for you. Because a lot of times people will go, hey, what was that verse about this? What was that verse about that? And so I've just, lit, for your convenience, I've listed and then just kind of a a brief description of, of why I referenced that. Hopefully, if you go back to, to sit down and look through some of this and do that, it will help you with that. So Genesis chapter one, it, like that's kind of gonna be the primary place where we stay. We'll spend, spend some time there. But I'm gonna take you to a lot of places and you don't have to turn there. I'm just gonna put it on the screen. I want you to filter everything we look at today through this lens. Matter of fact, if we were real, we would filter life through this lens of Ephesians chapter six that says put on the full armor of God or God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we're not fighting against flesh and blood, but we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So when we see a physical battle with our own eyes where people are shooting each other and things going on, there is a bigger spiritual battle that is taking place. There's spiritual warfare going on in the unseen world. So everything we look at today, I want you to filter it through Ephesians chapter 6. Yes, there is a physical battle going on in the Middle East, but even more so, there is a spiritual battle that is taking place in the unseen world. And Isaiah chapter 14, again, don't turn there, I'm just going to pop it up on the screen for a second. Isaiah 14 talks about the origins of this battle. And so let me, let me be clear, I'm not taking things out of context. In Isaiah chapter 14, God is prophesying through his prophet Isaiah about the restoration and the redemption of Israel. 
But in that, he also has a few words for Babylon, who was the world superpower of the day. We have in, in biblical history the Babylonian exile, where this just evil, ruthless, vile army of the Babylonians came through and they conquered Israel and Judah, and literally they removed them from their homeland. Now that Babylonian exile is where we get the story of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Esther, so on and so forth. All right? So God has a word to the Babylonians, specifically the God, lowercase g, the God that they serve. Like, I know about your God. Matter of fact, God says, I created him. Let me show you that in Isaiah chapter 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O you shining star, son of the morning. So it's a, it's a kind of a beautiful description of this, this person that's being referenced. You've been thrown down to earth. You who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will reside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Verse 15, instead, let me tell you what's going to happen. You will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. This is referring to Lucifer, Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, Crimson Tide, whatever you call them, okay? Somewhere before the creation, an angel, a being that God created, became full of pride, and he looked at himself, and he's like, you are, mm, you are awesome, right? And he starts to play armchair quarterback, like if I was God, I could do things better. If I was God, I could be better. And, and what Isaiah says is, you set to self yourself equal or better than God's stars. And so how this really played out is Satan and a third of the angels were kicked out of heaven. Jesus describes it in Luke 10. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. So since before creation, Satan has attempted to set himself up as equal to God. In an attempt to do that, he has to counterfeit everything that God does. So on the bad guy's side, there's always going to be this counterfeit, okay? There is a holy trinity. Satan has a counterfeit, unholy trinity. We have the Holy Spirit. You will see unholy spirit. So Satan is always trying to counterfeit the things of God. And if you go back to the creation story, back in Genesis, Satan used deception and half-truth and fake news in an attempt to get God's other creation, that's humanity, to get them to worship him. Satan was trying to deceive them into to worship him. And he has to do that through being a counterfeit. Okay? Everybody with me? So let's go to Genesis chapter 21. And we're going to spend a little bit of time here unpacking these characters and the players in the story that happens here. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, verse 8. When Isaac grew up, it's such interesting, the wording here. Like when Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, you got to pick. Was he grown up or was he weaned? Because it's not the same thing, right? But as Isaac was growing and he comes to an age where he's ready to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion, equivalent of our birthday party. It's just a measuring point in Isaac's growth. It's a big step in life. And so they have this feast, if you will. Verse 9, but Sarah saw Ishmael. I'm going to explain to you who Ishmael is. He's the son of Abraham and her Egyptian Lock that in. Her Egyptian servant, Hagar, Ishmael was making fun of Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of the slave woman and her son. He is not 
going to share in the inheritance of my son Isaac, I won't have it. Verse 11. Well, this upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, don't be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Isaac is the son whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So we're in Genesis chapter 1, and really this is the parting or the sending off of Ishmael and his mom Hagar, but the story dates back to Genesis. It begins back in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls a man. At this time, his name is Abram. He'll eventually change his name to Abraham, and his wife's name in Genesis 12, Sarai, but will eventually change her name to Sarah. And God was looking, and God found a man in Abram, and it wasn't because, oh, he's so good looking, or oh man, this guy is so smart, or he's got it going on. He found a man who was a man full of faith. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham obeyed God. Abraham was full of faith, and God saw a faithful man that he could establish a covenant with that would eventually undo the deception of Satan in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. It would undo the curse of sin and death, okay? So in the course of this story, after Isaac, the son of Sarah, is born, God asked Abraham, will you sacrifice your son? And in the, in, in the movies or in the like children's books, we always kind of cast that character of Isaac as a small boy. Pretty good chance he was a pretty good-sized kid. Pretty good chance he was 14, 15, 16. He, he could have been very well aware, old enough to realize what was going on. God asked Abraham, will you sacrifice your son? And so Abraham took Isaac to a mountain. Isaac carried the wood on his back. Isaac did not fight his father. Isaac willingly laid down his life to be sacrificed because his father Ask him to, what I want you to see about Isaac, he is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Jesus would carry the wooden cross. Jesus did not resist his father. Jesus willingly laid down his life because his father asked him to. So God establishes a covenant with Abraham and he promises him land he promises him a lineage through his son Isaac. Remember we read that, that your son Isaac is who your nations or your sons will be counted. He promises him land, he promises lineage, and then he promises to be his Lord. Okay, land, lineage, and Lord. But before Isaac came along, Abraham, like many of us, got tired of waiting on God. I don't know about you, but there's times that I just get tired of waiting on God. And so we either kick the door in ourselves, we try to make something happen on our own. Abraham and his wife Sarah tried to bring about the promise of God on their own. When you do that, it doesn't end well. 4,000 years later, people are still fighting over the promise that Abraham tried to fulfill out of his own ability. So this is what happens. Sarah, the wife of Abraham's youth, she comes to Abraham and says, listen, I know God has said we're going to have a son. The problem is I'm too old. I'm beyond childbearing. So she saw something in one of her servants that she trusted, 
At the time, Hagar must have been very respected. Like of all the people that Sarah knew, she picked her, she picked Hagar. And she brings Hagar to Abraham and says, I can't give you a child, so I'm going to ask her to be a surrogate. And when she has a child, I will claim him as my own. So Hagar is this surrogate, if you will, and she gives birth to a boy that's named Ishmael. We just read about him in Genesis chapter 21, okay? Eventually, we're not sure when in the timeline, but 16, 18, maybe even 20 years later, Sarah miraculously gets pregnant and gives birth to a son by the name of Isaac, okay? So, as we read, as he's being weaned, there's this celebration of sorts. He's a toddler, maybe two, maybe two and a half years of age. They're celebrating this. His older brother Ishmael, 16, 17, 18, maybe even older, is making fun of him. At least that's how the newer translation translates it. But in that moment, Sarah perceives danger. Sarah sees something and perceives something. And she says to Abraham, that boy and that woman have got to go. I'm not going to let them stay in a place where they can harm my son. So according to Genesis chapter 1, Abraham sends Hagar, the surrogate, the Egyptian servant, and her son Ishmael, he sends them out. Cast them out, sends them packing. But he assures, God assures Abraham, verse 13, I will make a nation of your descendants of Hagar's son of Ishmael because he is your son. Okay? Later on in Genesis chapter 21, an angel would appear to Hagar and would basically make the same promise that, that your son is going to be the father of a nation. All right? One other time, an angel appeared to Hagar, Ishmael's mother, and he described what Ishmael was going to grow up to be. In Genesis 16, he said, the son of yours, talking about Ishmael, will be a wild man. He will be like an untamed donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. He will live in open hostility to all of his relatives. He will live in open hostility to all of his relatives. So God finds a man in Abraham that was faithful and he establishes this covenant. Abraham has two sons. One is the, is the son of Sarah. Sarah is the wife of his youth. That is the lineage. That's the one that God promises your sons will be counted through that. But he has another son through an Egyptian servant who served as a surrogate in Ishmael. Isaac... The descendants of Isaac, Isaac kept Jacob, Jacob had the 12 sons. That becomes the nation of Israel, the Jews, okay? Ishmael, the wild donkey of a man, who God also said would become a great nation, his descendants are the Arabs and the Palestinians, okay? The Egyptians pre-existed, Syrians pre-existed, but you have this other people group that's in the Middle East, they're the Arabs and the Palestinians, now, I want to fast forward 3,000 years, and just gently, I want you to nudge your neighbor to make sure they're still awake, all right? Like, here we go. I feel like a history lesson. I want to fast forward in the timeline almost 3,000 years to the year A.D. 610, 610 years after the birth of Jesus, and there's a man by the name of Muhammad. His father died before he was born. His mother died when he was five, Okay. Muhammad, as he reaches early adulthood, is in a retreat in a cave near Mecca, and he claims he was visited by Gabriel the angel. 
He was not. He was visited by an unholy, a counterfeit angel that was des- des- described himself as angel, but it was a demon. Let me show you Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. This is Paul's warning. And he said, let God's curse fall on anyone, including myself, but anyone, and even an angel from heaven who preaches a different gospel, who preaches a different good news than the one that we preach to you. And what gospel did Paul preach? It was Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. Don't add to, don't take away from, let a curse fall on you, whether you're a human, whether you're a good speaker, or if you're an angel. So Muhammad is in this cave near Mecca, 610 AD, and this demon, if you will, presents itself in a spirit of deception and gives him a series of revelations, okay? And in this series of revelations, he reverses the biblical narrative that we read in Genesis chapter 21. What, through this revelation, what Muhammad begins to claim is that Ishmael, the son of Hagar, he was actually the chosen son of promise. That Ishmael was the one that Abraham put on the altar and then the angel rescued. Ishmael was the chosen son. That Isaac was the son of the surrogate. That Sarah was, was the slave. And Isaac and Sarah were the ones that, that slept away. And so through this revelation, he claimed that the descendants of Mishmael are now God's chosen people. He reversed the narrative that's found from Genesis 12 to Genesis 21. Do you recall how I started this conversation with the fallen angel from Isaiah, right? With the fall of Satan, where he said he was gonna set himself up to be like God, and he got kicked out for it. And then since then, he has set out to destroy God's other creation, which is mankind and humanity. Use deception if you have to. This unholy angel, this demon, set out to deceive Muhammad. And so through this, Muhammad, through this revelation, creates a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit religion called Islam, okay? So you have one man, Abraham, one wife, Sarah, one wife, one surrogate, Hagar, and you have two sons, Isaac, the son of promise, Ishmael, the son that was rejected, and there is animosity from the time that Isaac is even two years old, and it's been happening for 4,000 years, So what's going on today in Israel stems back to the fighting between two half-brothers and their descendants. The descendants of Isaac are the nation of Israel. The descendants of Ishmael are Arabs and Palestinians. They're fighting over land. They're fighting over lineage. Who's the real son? Who are the real descendants? And they're fighting over who is the Lord. Is it Yahweh or is it Allah? Okay? Hamas. You turn on the news, you read the headlines, you open social media, Hamas, 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 Hamas. You see Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. People protesting, people marching for in favor, Hamas, Hamas, Hamas. Hamas is actually an acronym, okay? An acronym is when you take several words and like you take the first letter of those words and you put them together to kind of shorten something up. And by the way, you put them together in a way that they actually spell something, like NASA. That's an acronym, Okay? POTUS, we'll use that word now, but that's president of the United States. POTUS, that, that's an acronym. Dodge, drains or drops grease everywhere. <laughs> Dodge. Math, 
Mental abuse to humans. That's, a, that's an acronym, right? Okay. So Hamas, when they began, they, they just put together an acronym. And this is from Wikipedia. And I'm not going to try to pronounce these words, but I want you to see it. And if you go on Wikipedia and put Hamas in, this is all there. Hamas is an acronym from an Arabic phrase. Okay? There it is. And it means Islamic resistance movement. They put together this acronym that just so happened to spell Hamas, okay? It's an acronym. So the word Hamas actually appears in the Old Testament. Now let me be clear with you. These Arabs, these Palestinians, did not go to the Hebrew Bible and take a word to name their terrorist organization. Matter of fact, they would have probably changed it had they known that word actually appeared in the Hebrew Bible. Okay? They used an acronym, Hamas, that actually does translate zeal in their language. Okay? It just so happens that that word, Hamas, is in the Old Testament, and I'm, I'm going to show it to you several, several times. And if you're following along on the outline on the back, you'll see that I've got, but it, it's, it's listed over 60 times in the New Testament. I'll get there in just a second. But first, let me show you Genesis chapter 6. That's the story of Noah, where God looked down and the earth was full of violence and evil and corruption. Genesis 6:11 says, now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled, could be translated possessed, with Hamas, okay? Strong, if, if you're a student of the Bible and you like Strong's Concordance, the Strong's number is H, H stands for Hebrew, H2555, okay? And the word Hamas appears over 60 times in the Old Testament. Of those 60, 39 of them, it's translated violent. Seven, it's translated violent. Four times, it's translated cruelty, false. You can read the list, Okay? Hamas, the Hebrew word is violence, cruelty, sometimes used as deception, wrong. Judges chapter 9, God was punishing Abimelech for murdering Gideon's seven sons and the citizens of Shechem or the Shechemites. And they described Shechem, they supported him in his Hamas, his treachery of murdering. Okay, Psalm 35, 11, malicious. Hamas, vile, malicious people testify against me. They accuse me of crimes that I know nothing about. Deception, okay? Over and over and over in the Old Testament, when referring to evil, deceit, violence, the word Hamas is there used 60 times. In Genesis chapter 16, when Hagar, the surrogate, remember the Egyptian servant, she now becomes pregnant Something happens in her when she becomes pregnant. If you remember, Sarah picked her for a reason. Sarah felt like she could trust her. Prior to Hagar becoming pregnant, she was, she was submissive. And, and for some reason, Sarah saw something in her that, here, I'm going to trust you to give birth to a son that I trust that you will entrust to me and give to him. And she gets pregnant. And when she gets pregnant, something happens. She begins to be disrespectful to Sarah. She begins to treat her with disdain and contempt. Genesis 16, verse 5. Then Sarah said to Abraham, you're responsible. Well, hold on. Sarah brought the woman. But Sarah says to Abraham, you're responsible for this 
Wrong, I am suffering. That phrase, wrong, I am suffering, can be translated, guess what? Hamas. Here's what I want you to see. Hamas is an evil, unholy spirit. It's a demon. It's a demon. Counterfeit. We have a holy trinity. Satan has an unholy trinity. We have a holy spirit. Satan has unholy spirit. Hamas is a spirit that exudes itself in violence and deceit and evil. Joel chapter three, verse 19. But Egypt will become a wasteland and Edom will become a wilderness. Like God's going to judge them because they attacked Hamas. They attacked the people of Judah and they killed innocent people in the land. They killed innocent women. They killed innocent children. That, my friends, is the demonic evil spirit of Hamas. God judged Egypt because he violently killed children and innocent people. By the way, where was Hagar from? She was from Egypt. And the spirit of Hamas was also found in Egypt. So Sarah carried God's promise. Sarah carried God's spirit. She carried the chosen child, Isaac, the son of promise. Hagar carried a spirit of Hamas. Remember when Hagar got pregnant, something changed? When Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a party. Ishmael, with the spirit of Hamas, picked on his little brother. Let's just say he's 16 years old. Is it a fair fight for a 16-year-old other brother to pick on a two-year-old toddler? No. Hamas, it's an unholy spirit of violence and deceit and abuse towards innocent people, specifically children. Genesis chapter 6 says the world was filled, it was possessed with Hamas. 6.30 a.m., IST, Israel Standard Time, on October the 7th. Air raid sirens were activated in Israel in response to Hamas missiles that were being fired. That was the first thing that happened on October 7th, just a couple of weeks ago, that started this chain of events that is taking place in the Middle East. What's interesting about October the 7th is it is 50 years and one day to the date of the Yom Kippur War of 1973. October 7th is the day after the conclusion of a Jewish week-long festival, a week-long holiday called Sukkot. Okay, and it's a festival where the Jewish people celebrate God's protection. He provided shelter for them as they were fleeing the exodus of Egypt. And God provided for them. They take several days to stop and give thanks for what God did to their ancestors all those years ago. Okay? This would be the equivalent to an attack in the United States on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Like Thanksgiving, man, we go to grandma, grandpa's, and we see, we gather people. It's holiday. We're kind of a little bit more relaxed. And, and so, yes, Thanksgiving's on Thursday, but you got Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and so on and so forth. And so it was an attack the day after the conclusion of their holiday. October 7th is also a Saturday, which is the Sabbath for Jews, meaning they would be resting. So they're very vulnerable. So... I believe this timing of this attack is, is very intentional for multiple reasons. I'll talk about the two main. Number one, people are very vulnerable. They've been on holiday, if you will. They've been in festival. 
It's also the Sabbath, they're resting. But then secondly, their desire is to create terror around a joyful holiday. If I say the word September 11th, if you were alive then, that day triggers an emotion for you. I can still close my eyes and I can see that second jet flying into the second tower, like I can see it. And if you were alive, when I say September 11th, you, it just triggers just the, the pain, the uncertainty, even the fear that came about. Same thing with December 7th. For people that are students of history, we, we know that December 7th, that was the day that the Japanese attacked our naval base at Pearl Harbor in Japan. 2,400 people died. Okay. Those days, they're not, they're, they're not great celebration days. They're actually days of pain, death, and trauma. What terrorists were trying to do on this holiday was associate pain, death, and trauma on the anniversary of a celebration. And if you do that, that holiday loses its joy and it loses its celebration. So instead of gathering with your friends and family and celebrating God and remembering God's provision of what he did for your ancestors, that day becomes a day of grief, sadness, and trauma. They take their focus off of God and force to put it on their pain. So that date becomes a negative thing. Okay? They put the map of Gaza up on the screen. And so we're talking about a little bit. I mean, this is like the number three most densely populated place on earth. Millions of people live in just this little, little bitty spot. Okay? So Gaza is on the screen, they're in white, densely populated. It is surrounded by a wall, and Israel is on the outside of that, okay? There's, one, there's two ways in. You can come in from the north, or you can come in and exit from the south, okay? There are three primary players in this conflict that's going on in Gaza, in Palestine, and in Israel, okay? You have the Israeli government, and you have the Palestinian government, and they've been working towards peace, okay? And then you have Hamas, which is the third party. They are a terrorist organization. They operate inside of Gaza. Now, here's the kicker. Some people that are Hamas or loyal to Hamas have been elected to and been put in power or place in Palestine, okay? But the Palestinian government is not Hamas, but it's just really hard to separate the two for years, Israel has been asking the Palestinian government, give us the terrorists. If you don't control them, we will. They have to stop shooting rockets at us. They have to stop attacking us. They have to stop with the terrorism. Turn them over. Give them to us. And the Palestinians have not complied and they won't do it. Primarily because some of the people from Hamas have found their way into elected positions in Palestine. So Gaza and Israel are separated by this wall. You can enter and exit from the north, and you can enter and exit from the south, which borders Egypt, the south does, okay? After the Hamas terror attacks of October 7th, Israel started giving warning to civilians, we are going to deal with Hamas. If you are a civilian, get out. This is about to become a war zone. If you are a civilian, get out. Couple of problems. Number one, remember one of the entrance and exits to the south to Egypt. Egypt closed their border to Gaza. They knew 
that the terrorists would be leaving just like the civilians. And Egypt doesn't want Hamas in their borders any more than anybody else does. They also don't want to deal with the millions of refugees that would be flooding into Egypt because then they would have a refugee crisis on their hands. So number one, Egypt closed their border to Gaza. Number two, you can get out the north, but Hamas has closed the roads and Hamas closed the exit to the north. They have literally stopped people from moving so their own people cannot escape where they are in Gaza. Hamas is encouraging the Palestinians. They're encouraging civilians to stay and do your spiritual duty to serve as a human shield and martyr for Islam. You ever notice like in, in TV or movies or even politicians will say this, they, they say this, that, oh, Islam is a religion of peace. The reason why they have to say that and the reason why they have to sell that is because it is not. Islam is a religion of death. It glorifies death. It glorifies martyrdom. If you die a martyr in Islam, you will be rewarded with virgins in eternity. It's a reward for them. It's apparently punishment for the virgins. So what Hamas has tried to do in this conflict is they have created a no-win situation for Israel. So we call a double bind, the lose-lose. Okay? So you're Israel. You have two options. Option one is Hamas attacks you and the world begins to put pressure on you. Israel, just be calm. I know they killed a bunch of people. I know they killed a bunch of people. But Israel, be calm. Do nothing, do nothing. And if Israel does nothing, they lose because it will never stop. Hamas will only grow stronger. Other bad actors will begin to realize that Israel won't do anything. Israel is weak. And so the attacks on Israel will only intensify. If Israel does nothing, they lose. Option number two, if Israel responds, they have to attack Hamas locations. They have to attack Hamas military locations. They have to attack their bunkers, their weapons storage facilities. They have to attack where the Hamas have their missile sites. The problem with the spirit of Hamas, that's what we're talking about, an evil demonic spirit. The spirit of Hamas, it cares not, cares nothing for the value of life. Do you remember Joel 3.19 where God said, I'm going to punish Egypt and Edom because of their murder and their attack on innocent people. What Hamas has done is they have hidden their military stuff in schools, in hospitals, in mosques. And when Israel attacks, the, the, when they attack Hamas, civilians die. Because Hamas, Hamas has used the civilians as a human shield. So around the world, everybody is mad at Israel. Everybody's mad at Israel. But nobody's mad at Egypt for closing their border. Nobody's holding Hamas accountable for holding the own Palestinian people hostage. Nobody's holding them hostage. We're just out protesting Israel because they've retaliated because of a vile, demonic, evil attack that was placed on their people October the 7th. It's a lose-lose situation. If they do nothing, they continue to be attacked. Israel's portrayed as weak. Bad actors get involved, and they're sitting duck. If Israel responds, Hamas is hiding behind innocent civilians, but you got to go get them. And so now you have a world that is protesting and crying out injustice. So let me close with this. We have very different views of end time. 
And you have the spirits of Hamas, Genesis 6. The world was possessed. The world was full of Hamas. It's evil. It's demonic. Satan has always tried to counterfeit the things of God with a fake angel claiming to be Gabriel. He gave fake revelations to a man by the name of Muhammad who created a counterfeit gospel, a counterfeit religion called Islam. They're fighting over land, lineage, who's the real line? Is it Isaac Ishmael? And they're fighting over who is the Lord. So Islamic end times, their goal, their calling is to eventually rule the whole earth. They are on a mission. They are reproducing. They are training. They are on a mission. And they have already made massive strides into Europe. Their goal is to rule the whole earth. Eventually, every nation be under the rule of Islam. That's their goal. And in Islam, there is no separation of church and state. They will rule through the Quran. They will rule through um, their law. Just look at the nations that are currently ruled by Islamic law. See how free they are. Women enjoy those outfits, right? And you've seen all these protests and protests, and and I absolutely find it um, hilarious when you have gays and transgenders that are out there in marching in support of Palestine and Islam because their law will just simply kill them as infidels. So Christianity is a religion of proposition. Will you come follow Jesus? Will you deny yourself, take up your cross, and will you come? It's a a religion of invitation. It's an invitation of proposition. Will you receive? Will you follow Jesus? Islam is a religion of convert or die. So when Islam rules... They will rule with an iron fist. They are in, they are on jihad to rule every nation. And the Quran gives them permission to lie and be deceitful if necessary. Islam is a religion of peace. It's okay to lie as long as it advances Islam. So we can take over and rule every world, every nation on the world. And what their hope is, they believe that when they govern and rule every nation in the world, it will usher in global peace And then in there will a king rise up and rule. Again, Satan is a counterfeit. He's always trying to get people to to worship him. So the best he can do is counterfeit God and maybe then people will worship him. That Islamic king that they are trying to usher in is what we call the Antichrist. They call him a Messiah. This is how our view of end times plays out. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he says, now concerning how and when all of this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, I don't really need to write to you because Paul talked with them and taught them when he was with them. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return, the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then Israel and Palestine have been talking peace, talking peace, talking peace. They were in the midst of talking peace when the terrorist attacks happened on October 7th. When everyone is saying everything is is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains. Jesus himself and Matthew talked about the end times and labor pains. And I believe we're in those labor pains, the giving birth of a new kingdom with Jesus as our king. There will be no escape. Verse 4. 
But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. You won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Verse 9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. amen. Not to pour out his anger on us. Jesus died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. There's a lot of theology there, but Mazios is waiting on you, so I'm going to wrap it up. So encourage one another and build each other up just as you are already doing. Islam's trying to control every nation. They believe that that will usher in world peace and that their king, their Messiah, who's a counterfeit, he's the Antichrist, stuff on the scene. We believe that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he will judge his enemies and he will establish an eternal kingdom. So where should we stand on the Middle East? And this is what I find so interesting. The young, younger generations just really don't know and they're so influenced by influencers and let me tell you, the spirit of Hamas is a deceitful spirit. I mean, there's multitudes of videos about their people faking funerals. All of a sudden, the dead person gets up. It's deception. And they're trying to convince a younger generation with, with deception. So, so what should we believe about the Middle East conflict? Well, number one, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Psalm 122 tells us, and there's multiple verses in there. I'm just going to put 6 and 7 up there because it's clear. Pray for the peace in Jerusalem. Pray for peace. May all who love this city prosper. O Jerusalem, may there be peace within your walls and prosperity in your palaces. We need to pray for the Jews. We need to pray for the Palestinians. We need to pray for the innocent people. Political peace will not solve this. Ephesians 6 tells us this is a spiritual war in the unseen realm. Give or take, maybe 2 3% of the Jews are Christians. Give or take in Palestine, 2 or 3% of them are Christians. Pray that the other 98% find Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. God still loves the Jews. He also loves the Palestinians. He also loves the Canadians and the Americans and the Nicaraguans. Let me be clear. They all need Jesus. The Jews are violently under attack from an evil demonic spirit called Hamas because of a covenant in Genesis chapter 12. And this very well may be the end of days. Or this old earth could have another thousand years in her. I don't know. Our job is to love Jesus and make him known. So I don't have a secret code. Like I didn't go to Obadiah and take every third word, the, the second letters of vowel and, and, and translate from Hebrew to Greek into Japanese back to English. I, I, don't, I don't have a secret code to tell you when Jesus is coming. What I do know is this could end any day. That trumpet could blow. And listen, how, how cool would it be to not have to go through another United States presidential election cycle? Come on, somebody. Let's just get Jesus here. Let's just let Jesus reign and rule forever so we don't have to mess about that stuff. My question for you, are you ready? Like this may or may not be the end times. This may or may not be the peace. This may or may not, I, I don't know, but I know this, it's your end times. And some of you is getting really close. <laughs> the Bible says that life is but a mist, but a vapor. So whether Jesus waits another thousand years, or whether he comes back today, 
are you ready? The gospel is clear. All, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And while I was dead and stuck in their sin, there was nothing I could do. And Jesus said, I'll go. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He willingly carried the wood of that cross. He willingly surrendered his life. He did not fight his father so that he would shed his blood so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. The book of Romans says if you'll confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are you ready? If that trumpet blows today, are you ready? If you're not, I want to simply help you confess and believe. All across this room, nobody moving around, every head bowed, every eye closed, be real still because somebody here today may be doing eternal business with Jesus. And if you know that you're not right relationship with God, I want to help you. I'm just going to pray a prayer and right there at your seat, I invite you just to pray this prayer with me. No magic chant, no magic formula, just the heart of sincerity is what God's looking for. You ready? Just say this, say, Dear Heavenly Father, right there, just Dear Heavenly Father, come to you today because I need you I made a lot of mistakes would you forgive me would you come into my life would you save me begin to change me make me a new person I don't want that life anymore today Jesus I surrender my life to you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast today. If you did, there's a couple of things I want to invite you to do. First, hit the subscribe button. That way, you won't miss a single episode. Secondly, if this message has impacted you and you would like to help us reach others, visit our website at hillspring.tv and hit the Give Now button so that we can take this message around the globe. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.